Excellent. So I think we're all working. Um, so yeah, as you've heard, we're in Acts chapter 2. Hannah read to us a passage from the end of Acts chapter 2. Um, and that's what we're going to look at this afternoon. We're carrying on our series in the book of Acts, uh, entitled Mission Unstoppable, um, as we prepare for mission kind of from this year, heading into next year, culminating with some uh, specific mission events around Easter time, and then heading forward into following up, looking at um, hopefully Luke's gospel one-to-one with some of our friends that maybe are interested or have become Christians through the mission events. So um, let's read the passage again, and we'll pray, and then we'll uh, work through it. So if you've got your Bibles, it's good to keep them open. So let's read it. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favour of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who are being saved. So that's what we're going to look at this afternoon. So let's pray and then we'll go for it. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is such an amazing gift from you to us. Father, I pray that you would help us to uh, enjoy it more, to read it more, to take it to heart more. Father, I thank you that it's just a wonderful book for us to, to have that teaches us all about Jesus. And Father, I pray that this afternoon as we look through it, you would show us more and more who Jesus is. You would impress him onto our hearts more and that we would become more and more like him and we would want to become more and more like him still. And Father, we pray the church that you would build us up and encourage us and, uh, and empower us by your spirit for mission because of Jesus. Amen. So, I uh, was coming to this passage and I wasn't 100% certain what to to call it, but I've decided to call it this week, Jesus' Family. Because I could have called it the church, um, but I think sometimes there's some funny funny ideas about that. So I think it's a great place for us to be this afternoon with the question, what is the church? Oh good, I'm glad that's the the right point to press that. So, what is the church? I thought it was a really good question. Um, there are a lot of ideas of what the church is, or maybe should be, um, maybe how a church should function, or what it should do, or how it does church. Um, but I want to focus today on what does it mean to be part of Jesus' family. And when I say Jesus' family, I, I, I mean church, but I want to use Jesus' family because I think it's a little bit clearer than church. I think if I went into town and asked people, what do you think the church is? Particularly if you're in town, uh, they might go, it's, it's there. You know, and point at the minster in town, which is down there somewhere. But they might, if you said, what is the church? It's that building there. They might say it's just a religious building, a place for Christians to meet. It's a, they could say, if they were a bit cynical, um, it's a building full of hypocrites. Um, you know, maybe it's something to be turned into a carpet shop, car showroom. Um, or a mosque as some have been around here I was out the front the other day of this church and a little Asian girl on a bike said to me what is 
What's that? And so it's a church. What's going on? It's, oh, well, we're having a service at the minute. And um, I said, oh, what are you turning it into? Because to a lot of people, churches are just becoming other things. It was just really funny that this girl, she must have been seven or eight, thought it's a church, therefore at some point it will be turned into something else. Because um, the church just up the road that way has become a mosque and there's a church if you drive through Parkgate, which is now a, is it a fire surround shop, something like that. And there's a window shop and a door shop there that used to be a church as well. There's all sorts of uh, church buildings that are now shops. And I was really excited to see a report from another church um, in the States where when they're planting churches, they're trying to find old churches that aren't being used for worship anymore. And they, they say they want to repurpose them back. And it's just, yeah, it's really exciting to see what they've been doing. They've got all these amazing churches now full again. Um, some of them really old, kind of classic ones with a massive organ at the front. Um, and some, you know, they'll find anything if they can't find an actual church building. So, but before that, I don't think any of those answers really fulfil what the church is. I don't think it's just a religious building. It's not just a place full of hypocrites. It's not the minster in town. Um, so we're going to look at what the church is this afternoon. I think if you survey Christians as well about the idea, you would probably get a whole spread of ideas about what the church is. So maybe from one extreme to the other. But I think in Acts we have kind of a blueprint for the New Testament church. Um, we don't have all the methods, but we have the key principles. Um, so by that I mean the principles are the things that we kind of do and we keep on doing until Jesus comes back, as Sam was just reminding us in that song. So we have the principles, the thing that we are to do and keep on doing until Jesus comes back. And we have the methods, which is how we do the principles, and those things can be up for grabs. Okay, those things we can fiddle and change. You know, so a church here will look different to a church in India or a church in China. You know, the, the hymns that we sing will be different because if you made... I don't know, new converts in outer Mongolia sing our songs. They would have no idea what they were singing because they maybe can't speak English. So the methods change, but the principles stay the same. Um, so I want to spend two minutes just quickly on uh, saying what the church isn't as well before we go into what it is. Um, and it's because I hear quite often these couple of verses used out of context um, very regularly. And I mean, if you take verses out of context, you can make them say whatever you like, um, because that's really easy. You can just take, cut two lines out of the Bible and make them say whatever you want, because you've not got the rest of it there to compare it to. But in Matthew 18, there's two verses where it has the, that really famous phrase, where two or three are gathered, there I am in the midst of them. And so we've got, aha, there is the church. That's what it is. I don't need, you might say, I don't need to meet with you guys on a Sunday or meet in the, the midweek go-co's because, you know, I've got there's two or three of us that gather. I don't need to, to share in communion. I don't need to worship together. I just meet with one or two of my other Christian friends uh, for fellowship. And that's the church, right? You know, I've heard people argue that. I've heard people say, you know, that's how I kind of understand the church, or that's what the church should be. And they think that is what the Bible says about the church. Um, I would say to them, depending on who they were, and depending on maybe how much I how much sleep I'd had and how much I liked them personally, I would say that was wrong. Um, that's maybe a bit blunt. But the reason for that is that uh, that passage is about church discipline rather than the church itself. It's not about what the church is or an encouragement for the two or three people who turned up to the prayer meeting that day. 
It is um, a passage on church discipline. It says, in a situation where a church member is in sin, you know, go and tell them that they're in sin. If they go, you know, if they repent, if they come back to the church, that's great. If they don't, take somebody else, take a couple of witnesses. And if they repent and come back to the church, that's great. If not, take it to the whole church. Um, if they listen and repent, that's great. And if not, it says to treat them as an outsider, like a tax collector or a sinner. You know, that's not the church of the New Testament. So that is the, the way the New Testament church exercised discipline. And the idea of church discipline isn't something cooked up later by pastors and ministers who wanted to kind of enforce uh, their, their you know, autocratic rule on the church. It's something that Jesus installed in the Gospels to make sure that his family would be really well looked after. Um, and I think it's to the extent that if you know, pastors and ministers and vicars and priests and whoever aren't willing to exercise church discipline over Jesus' family, then they're not worthy for the position that they've been called to. So we're still left with the question, what is the church? Or maybe the better question for today will be, what is Jesus' family? So we're going to look at seven aspects of what it means to be part of Jesus' family. If you're taking notes, there'll be seven aspects. Um, when I was looking through some stuff this week, people split them up differently. Um, a hero of mine split it into four, John Stott, um, some into five. And one person I found split it into 11. Um, so I'm kind of in the middle with seven. So we're going to look at seven, and hopefully you'll be able to stay awake and stay with me. And if I don't do more than ten minutes on each one, we'll not be here for too long. Um, uh, but, however, however, if you look back at Acts chapter 2, verse 40, during, uh, talking about Peter's sermon, it says, with many words he warned them. With many words. So if we're here for you know, an hour and a half, we're being biblical people. So, so that's fine. Lots and lots of words is biblical. Um, however, you can use a lot of words to say nothing. Um, thank you, sir. We'll be here two hours now. Um, yeah. So let's see what these seven are. They all start with, Jesus-centred something. Um, so the first one is Jesus-centred devotion. Because it says at the beginning passage, they devoted themselves to... So I thought it'd be good to start with this idea of devotion. I don't think particularly that devotion is one of the most popular ideas around in today's culture. We don't particularly um, do devotion to kind of anything, apart, I, I make a caveat here, apart from really the football teams who we will die for, um, but apart from that, we're not really, well I won't because I'm not bothered, but um, you know, people really love football teams, but um, yeah, apart from that, we don't do a lot of devotion, we see kind of an awful lot of marriages breaking down because either one side or the other isn't devoted to the cause of making it work, um, or one side is more devoted to the promotion of self-worth, self-fulfillment, self-actualization, look that one up in the dictionary, um, whether that's through overwork or adultery or using pornography or using the other person as a stepping stone to kind of make it onto the next level in their life. And once they've served their purpose, they can kind of be done away with. So, um, so sometimes it's because neither has ever really been devoted to the other for a long time. There's no desire on both sides uh, to enjoy each other, to kind of laugh together and cry together and argue together. Um, there is in our lives too, uh, I think there is often in our lives too much of, if it's broken, let's just chuck it away because it's easier to get a new one. Um, and I think maybe that has played out sometimes further than just kind of simple cheap products that we can get hold of. 
So if you're, some people might say, if your marriage is struggling, get rid of it, get a new one. If your kids are a nightmare to bring up, get rid of them. If your electricity company charges you too much, I will just say, I, um, it's really, really sad, but I do know people who have done that, and it, it really, yes, it's not a nice thing to do, um, but it, it does happen that people, too much trouble, get rid. Um, if your electricity company charges you too much, get rid, get a new one. If your job isn't bringing in enough money, get a new one, or maybe worse, if your job brings in less than the benefits that you could be on, scrap it and take the benefits. I think all of these things have one thing in common. They're all solely focused around the you right in the middle of it. They're all about me. They elevate me above the needs of everything and everyone else. Um, They say that I am the important one. If you don't help me achieve my aims, my goals, my dreams, my ambitions, then you're disposable. All of these things, they lead to fragility, because why would somebody trust a person like that? They lead to isolation. Because why would somebody invest in a person like that? And they lead to loneliness. Because why would somebody love a person like that? When the I or me comes before the us and the we, we're going to be in for some hard times. I think actually you can see this with little children, can't you? They don't understand the idea of sharing. They don't understand the idea of, you know, the world doesn't actually revolve around them. Um, and that really sometimes plays out in massive explosions of child noise, uh, and that's not very pleasant. Um, Anyway, we're all going to be devoted to something. Whatever it is, we're all going to be devoted. Whoever you are, wherever you live, whether that thing that you're devoted to is you, whether it is your wife or your husband, uh, your boyfriend or your girlfriend, your career, your bank balance, your image, your hobby, you will be a devoted follower or worshipper of something or someone. However, when it comes to Jesus' family, Christians, brothers and sisters in the family of Jesus are to be devoted to one person, and that's Jesus. By the, by the, by the Spirit, by the power of God's Spirit in us, the fruit of the Spirit uh, grow that's peace, patience, gentleness, faithfulness, kindness, goodness, self-control, and another one that I have missed that somebody will tell me later. Um, but by the fruit of the Spirit, joy, I think I missed that, um, and maybe another one. But the fruit of self-control builds in us because of the Spirit being there. Self-control is part of that. And by that self-control that the Spirit grows in us, we begin to, to tame our sinful desires, some quicker than others. Um, we begin the process of becoming more and more like Jesus. We can, by the Spirit, begin to be devoted to the family and be devoted to Jesus and his family. But the amazing thing is, that's kind of more amazing than all of that, even the fact that God gives us his Spirit to make us more like Jesus through that uh, fruit of self-control. The amazing thing is that Jesus, before any of that happened, chose to devote himself to us. When we were still in a place where we rejected God, when we rebelled against him, While the main person in our lives was me, someone, you know, other than Jesus. Jesus chose to live, die, rise, ascend into heaven and give us his spirit so that we could now know, love, enjoy, worship and devote ourselves to him. So the first characteristic of the New Testament church here, the first characteristic of Jesus' family is this one of devotion. 
it's not a kind of half-hearted thing. It is a sold-out, total devotion to Jesus. So that's the first one. That wasn't ten minutes. We're on track. Second one says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And we've heard Peter's sermon uh, last week, and we looked at that last week. Uh, We've got got a summary of what Peter said at Pentecost. So the second characteristic of Jesus' family is they are centred about Jesus' person and his teaching. Um, And we'll see here that it says they're devoted to the apostles' teaching. And apostles, somebody once caught me out on this excellently, um, the apostles, in any sense, not just Jesus' apostles, are messengers. An apostle is somebody sent with a message. And they knew the one that sent them. They knew the message kind of by heart. And if somebody asked a question about the message, they would be able to answer because they knew the person who sent them uh, really well. Somebody turned to me, um, not this summer, the summer before, and said, we, I was there helping lead a some 17 and 18 year olds and 19 year olds doing some discipleship stuff and serving on camp and he turned to me one of the other leaders and said uh, Richard can you tell me uh, the Beatitudes at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount and I think I got some like six or six of the kind of seven or eight depending on how you, you break them up and he, he was wanting to make the point that an apostle would know it off by heart so when these apostles came out with Jesus teaching they knew it they knew what Jesus had taught them because they'd spent time with him um, and he apologised afterwards for potentially making me feel embarrassed. It just made me want to try and learn them, and I think I've forgotten them again. So I'll, uh, I'll try and find out all what they are and stick them in my brain. Jesus taught about all sorts of different things, but a lot of the time they had one thing in common. The thing that he taught on most was the kingdom of God. That is a kingdom where God, his Father, was sovereign and where Jesus would be the king. But the interesting thing, I think, about Jesus' kingdom is that it's a kind of topsy-turvy kingdom. It's not a one that we'd be used to on earth. It's a one where the proud are humbled and the humble are exalted, where the meek prosper and the power-hungry are bankrupt. A place where the peacemakers are adopted into God's family and the troublemakers identify themselves as children of the devil, where the poor in spirit inherit God's kingdom and the self-sufficient don't, a place where the merciful are shown God's mercy, and those who are hard and cruel receives God's eternal wrath and judgment, where the mourners are comforted and the hard-hearted remain hard, where those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will find it, um, and those who crave sinfulness will find it, and it's just punishment. For those who are pure in heart will meet God, those who are wicked won't. A place where those who have been persecuted and reviled because they identify themselves with Jesus, will be vindicated, and their adversaries will be brought to justice. That's how Jesus describes his kingdom. They're from the Beatitudes at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. His apostles spend uh, more time talking about how that kingdom is lived out in specific places, and how Jesus um, became king of that kingdom throughout the New Testament. As you read through the, the books and letters of the New Testament, you see them writing and talking to different places, saying, look, this is how it applies to you. This is how this works out in your context. This is how um, this problem you're facing, if you bring it to the cross, kind of goes away because you've got something slightly skewed with. Uh, So the Apostles' teaching in the New Testament is focused around the cross, and it's totally 
impossible to have any of Jesus' teachings without the cross. For the apostles, the work of Jesus is the kind of be-all and end-all. And the kingdom that Jesus inaugurated included a coronation of a crown of thorns and being raised up on a cross. He brings about his kingdom in the most upside-down, back-to-front way um, we can possibly imagine. I think this is probably why it confused so many people at the time. He doesn't ride in on a white horse uh, to save Israel and kind of bash the Romans like Asterix and Oblix wanted to do all the time. Um, But he goes to a cross to save the true Israel, that is, Christians from the Old Testament and New Testament, now and into the future. Not from the oppression of the Romans, because they're not oppressing us, but from the oppression and bondage of sin and death and hell. We see here that they, the Jesus family, are a family that are a learning community, but one that, where the focus is Jesus and the application is our hearts, and it works out for the good of the family, the wider community, uh, because we have the good news of the gospel of Jesus to share. So that's two. So that was devotion, teaching. The next one, they devote themselves to teaching and to the fellowship. It's a great word, isn't it, fellowship? We use it often in churches at all sorts of different, different times. Um, and fellowship is not, it's not kind of the same as friendship, but it's not less than that. Um, this is the, the devotion to one another in the family of Jesus uh, that says the family is more important than I am, in that sense, where it says... The individual me is not more important than the rest of the family. True fellowship comes from a shared love for Jesus. A shared love for his word, a shared love for his glory, and for our good in him. This means that fellowship will have tough times. It will be a place where Christian... It'll be, sorry, it will be the place of Christian growth. Because as part of the fellowship, we're, we're called to give up the rights to call the shots in our own lives. And let others speak the truth of God in love to us. So if somebody else in Jesus' family sees uh, one of us in sin, it's their appropriate family response because they love us to come to us and say, you know, here's something that you're doing and I can see that it is against what Jesus wants for you. And our appropriate response to that is thankfulness. Um, Because their aim should be to help us to become more like Jesus and our aim should be to help them become more like Jesus. We don't get to become the sin police that put on our hat and go around saying stop that, stop that, stop that, you know, because that's not particularly loving. Um, no matter how much kind of we may think it'd be quite fun to put on a policeman's hat and do that, um, we become a community that puts Jesus right at the centre. We don't lord it over people, but we seek to put Jesus as Lord over the community. Jesus-centred fellowship also means that as Christians we don't have the, the, kind of the opportunity to be lone ranger Christians. We don't get to, you know, have, well, you wouldn't be a lone ranger if you had Tonto as well, because there'd be two of you. But you know what I mean? You don't get the chance to be a lone ranger Christian, not plugged into the life of the community, not plugged into Jesus' family, living as though you were kind of outside or, or above the family. Because Jesus unites us to himself by his spirit, and we become his body. But on the way we kind of see that is by Christians plugging into the life of the local church. We get connected, we commit to each other, we get plugged in, we share our lives together. Um, 
We can't be the church on our own. Like one person on his own isn't the church. And this was, you know, kind of unbelievably evident when you read through the life of the early church. They lived, um, they lived in the light of the truth that the earth belongs to God and all, like already and everything in it belongs to him. To the extent that all their possessions were kind of up for grabs when it came to the community. Um, what does it say? It's, all the believers were together, had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods and gave to anyone as he had need. Now, the question is, is that principle or method, is it the principle that if you're in Jesus' family, you have to be willing to bring the title deeds of your house, the logbook of your car, and give it over to the church so that if anybody has need, uh, we can sell your house or your car and plough that money into, I don't know, helping somebody out of a, a tight spot. Um, Interesting question. Is it principle or method? There's debates about this. Um, people think it sounds very communist um, or that you know, private property no longer exists. Um, I think this is a method rather than a principle. Some people are divided on it. The majority come down to this is a method rather than a principle. It's not something that we have to do. However, there is a, a kind of heart to it which says, actually, if somebody is in need, the community should respond. Um, and I don't think that it's talking about there is no longer any private property when it comes to the church because in the Ten Commandments there is the commandment thou shalt not steal. If there was no private property it would just be called relocating. Um, I might relocate Andrew and Andrew's TV um, because there's no longer private property along with you know um, somebody else's car and maybe relocate them out of their nice big house so that I could move in. Uh, and that would all be perfectly fine. But no, I don't think it says that. Um, I think it's saying that it is the duty of the community to respond to needs rather than we have to all chuck our stuff into the communal pot. Okay. And the interesting thing is, I think, that God doesn't operate a tax system. He operates a tithe system. God doesn't say, you have to pay me, you know, however much of whatever you've got like the government does when you get your wage slip, you think, oh, that's, oh no, that's a shame. I've now paid a chunk out in tax and, um, and I'm never going to see that again. Um, God doesn't operate like that. However, I would absolutely love it if the government in the next general election said, whoever stands up and says, I'm, we're going to change the tax system, we're going to operate a tithe system from now on, so I want all you, all you people in England to, um, and Wales and Northern Ireland, because Scotland might be independent by then, um, just pray about what you want to give as your income tax and do that, I would pray very shortly and decide to not pay anything. Um, however, God operates in a system where he says, I love you, and I've provided everything for you in the gospel. The, the life of Jesus has been given for you. I want you to, to consider giving to the life of my body, the church. Which is very different to saying, you must do this because I have done X, Y, and Z for you. One of our specific prayer points this year as a church is, is for our financial uh, needs. So I'd really encourage you to, to pray about kind of personal giving to the church here in Rotherham. 
that Jesus-centered fellowship is enabled by the gospel. It's only by knowing that our sins are forgiven in Jesus that you can mix so many different people from so many different parts of society and different parts of the world uh, in cases. That you can sit them next to each other. People who would never mix in normal life. I love that about the church. That you can, you know, that you can have somebody who's, I don't know, I don't want to sound um, like I'm kind of stereotyping, but somebody who is, you know, maybe a bin man is always one that we always use for somebody who's not got the best job in the world or refuse collector uh, sat next to maybe the most eminent surgeon in the land and they just sit and chat because they're brought together by the truth of the gospel. There's no way in normal life that you'd get the mix of people that you do in the church. But in the gospel we're called to look to the people to our right and our left and to say that you are my brothers and sisters in Jesus. We all become one big family. They may annoy you at times, because that's what families do. They may upset you at times, because that's what families do. But that's what they're all like. And this family isn't really going to be much different, because we're not perfect yet. One day we will be, but we're not yet. So when we laugh together, it's because we're family. When we fight together, it's because we're family. We fight from a position of knowing that the love we have for one another transcends all the issues that we're fighting over. There are all sorts of different problems in different churches. And, um, and if love would transcend all that, hopefully there would be greater unity. So, that's fellowship. Devotion, uh, teaching, fellowship. The next one is the breaking of bread or communion. It says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, and the breaking of bread. Okay. The Jesus family has to be devoted to Jesus-centered communion or the breaking of bread. Now, historians divide themselves not literally, uh, over this issue um, of whether this was a specific kind of thing that they would do now and again. They would do, um, they would get together for a specific breaking the bread meal or it would be maybe a kind of integrated into a normal meal that you would have in your home. Um, when you met with other Christians, you would just kind of have a, almost an elongated grace where you would break bread together, you would drink wine together and then you would eat your normal meal. Maybe that would be what it was. So sometimes they did it in small groups at home, sometimes they did it in larger groups as a kind of wider church. But the thing that they did was they regularly remembered the person and work of Jesus by sharing communion together. As we sit to eat together, we're reminded that Jesus was a real person who ate and lived with his disciples. As we take the bread and wine, we're reminded that Jesus lived died, died, rose. He ascended into heaven and he poured out his spirit for us. Not just for me, but for the whole of God's people as we do it together, all at once. Then he goes on to say, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, uh, the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Okay, they devoted themselves to Jesus-centered prayer. So Jesus' family are a Jesus-centered praying family. Firstly, I think this means that we are to desire and to delight, to encourage one another and crave spending time talking to our Heavenly Father. And the only way that we can do it is through Jesus. I think we've talked about this before, but um, I just want to remind you that prayer is a gospel activity. Because naturally as humans, because of our sinful nature, we have no access to God. Because we've rebelled against Him, we've rejected Him and His rule in our lives. And even if we wanted to talk to God, and naturally we don't, 
the bigger question is, why would God want to talk to us if we've rejected him? The answer is, I think, that in his great love, he chooses to make it possible for us to talk to him. By Jesus coming to earth from heaven in perfect community with God, he comes to earth, he lives, dies, rises. He ascends into heaven and the gift of his spirit means that by faith we are adopted into Jesus' family. We're part of his body. We have our sins forgiven. And by the Holy Spirit we have the same access to God the Father that Jesus does. If there isn't a greater encouragement for us to pray um, than God stepping into human life, his human history, so that we could know him, then I don't know what it is. Jesus' family is to be a praying family. We want to talk with our Heavenly Father about how amazing He is, about how much we love Him, about how thankful, how thankful we are that He's forgiven us for our rebellion and our rejection of Himself. And we want to seek His guidance and wisdom and help and leading in all that we do and be or are. Um, and we pray because God is able. Next. So, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer, Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. Jesus' family. Ooh. Got them in the wrong order. Um, so we'll go with that. It's centered around Jesus-centered worship. It says that awe came upon every soul. And I think, I think this is because as the apostles taught and preached about Jesus, people became Christians. Christians became more like Jesus and the community changed for the better. Signs and wonders followed the apostles. And I think it's kind of key that they're that way around. So the apostles went and taught and preached about Jesus and the signs and wonders kind of followed rather than the apostles did signs and wonders and then they taught about Jesus. I don't want you to think that the apostles were a kind of first century travelling magic show um, doing all sorts of signs and wonders trying to kind of win people's favour so that when they preached, they thought, these guys are amazing. I just want to swallow anything that they've got, hook, line, and sinker. They taught and preached Jesus, and then the signs and wonders followed. God isn't in the business of promoting the miracles above Jesus. He wants people to see Jesus, and then by his spirit, he does amazing things as he did the wonders and signs, that people would be brought to their knees and worship him. God is also at work improving by the signs and wonders that Jesus is who the disciples said he was. When the people met Jesus, when the apostles preached Jesus, and when the community studied Jesus, the correct correct response was awe and worship and wonder. They worshipped Jesus because he's worthy to be worshipped. He deserves it, and the Holy Spirit is there in the Christian to build up and cry out from inside ourselves, like Jesus did, uh, to the Father, Abba Father. Worship's also a thing that is more pleasant when we do it in the community of other believers. Now, maybe when we don't feel like worshipping, other people are there to help us and to help us join in. Maybe if we've lost our voice and we want to sing but we can't, we can just kind of, in a strange way, partake in what other people are singing because we can't silently. 
Worship isn't, however, just singing. It's, you know, it's kind of not less than that, but it's not just singing. Worship is how we respond to Jesus because of what he's done for us. Worship um, can sometimes be translated, is the same word as service in the original language. So when we worship Jesus, we choose to make ourselves subject to him and willingly and joyfully with big smiles, we do what he wants from us. Um, that is our worship. So our response to Jesus should be one of worship. So whether that is washing the dishes, cleaning the toilets, giving people lifts, helping somebody, um, praying, singing, reading the Bible, when we go to work, breathing, uh, what else have we got? Thinking, some of us do that, uh, being, loving, giving, acting, drinking coffee, all these sorts of things we can do in worship when we do them out of a joyful acceptance of who Jesus is. When we do them from a position of humility with Jesus as our God, we do them in worship. Jesus' family worships Jesus, not for his ego to be blown up, but because he deserves it, and because it's for our good. We're created as worshippers, which is why I said at the beginning we'll all be devoted to something. We're created as worshippers, and our true freedom and liberty comes from worshipping the one thing that is truly good and pure and holy, and that is Jesus. The seventh one, evangelism. So we've done. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, uh, fellowship, breaking of bread, prayer, worship, and evangelism is the next one. So here we see something amazing. We see uh, what the response was in the community uh, to Jesus' followers. Jesus is preached, Christians became more like Jesus, and people became Christians, and the community was changed for the better. Um, but, it's a, but kind of how many Christians, as I read this, I thought, he says, the Lord added to their number daily those who are being saved. So that means there were at least 365 new converts a year, kind of pro rata, um, at the beginning. Now, how amazing was that? At least one a day, it says the Lord added daily to their number those who were being saved. Now Rotherham and its surrounding area has a population of about 250,000. And if God saves one of them a day, including leap years, it will take us about 683 years to see them all saved. Um, I think we could maybe need to have a greater impact on that in this town. But we'll come to that in a minute. Um, what I want us to see though is that Christians living in devoted Christian community, worshipping, praying, communion taking, fellowshipping, teaching, uh, has a massive impact because they have experienced something tr like tremendous and of amazing value. It's something that, that's so amazing that the last thing they want to do with it is keep it to themselves. They realise that as the good news of the gospel goes out, it makes their community larger. God gets more glory, more rebels meet Jesus, and the church grows massively. And I really love the idea that, you know, in a, a year down the line, that we would have the real issue of what to do with another 365 church members. How good would that be? Um, might be quite scary to fit them all in here, though. We'd all have to stand up and go on diets. Um, or we'd just get another building. Um, that's the other option. Uh, so, that's why they're in the wrong order. And now, I thought this... That is Jesus' family. The question is... What 
do I then go and do? That's kind of what it's like. That's what it's all about. What do I go and do? I think that's a great question for us to be asking. Um, So let me just say again this week that if you're not a Christian and you want to be part of the community Jesus is building, join it. Repent of your sin. Turn from living from the devotion to anything but Jesus and devote yourselves to nothing but Jesus. Let him shape your life and the community that you're part of. If you are a Christian, you need to know that you can't be a lone ranger. You need to be plugged in to the life of the community. You need to be plugged into the life of the church for your growth, for the community's growth, for your good and your support. It's a place where vulnerability is how we live. Acceptance isn't hindered outside of the gospel. Where your growth to become more like Jesus is everybody's aim, not just your own. Where prayerfulness is obvious, where love abounds, where we worship together, where non-Christians can meet Jesus and more. We can't achieve a community like that without God's Spirit working, uh, working through us. But we have to be willing to make hard choices and difficult decisions to surrender to the rule of Jesus over his church and the community and let him adjust our priorities and preferences to his. Lastly, as we kind of come to a close, I mentioned at the beginning that we're in a year of mission at the minute. We're kind of doing some training in our GOCOs and we're looking at Acts because we're in a year of mission. Um, We need to be open to all these things so that God's spirit can be at work in us as a community as we prepare for that. So let me encourage you to be devoted to the life and vision and mission of the church. If you're not a member of the church, ask about that. Become a member. If you're not baptised, we looked at that last week, get baptised. We have got a pool here. It'd be really, really cold. But that's no reason not to get baptised in it. Um, It's either that or the river in town. Um, And that's really fast flowing and there's a weir. So probably here's better. Um, Yeah, so if you're not baptised, ask about that. If you're not a Christian, talk to us about that if you want to know Jesus. You've got to be devoted to God's people here. Kind of be being taught from God's word. Continually let God's word rule in your life and your family and your work and your desires. Uh, Be in fellowship with other Christians. Don't think that you're better off missing church or missing Gokos. God's people like to be together. Doesn't always feel like that. Sometimes families. You know, they have difficulties, they have fallouts, but it's good for Christians to want to be together. Join us as we share communion together. And this year, we're, we said at the beginning, at la- the last one, we're going to spend a year building on our theology of the cross in our communion. So come along and find out what that is going to look like. Be a praying people. Join one of the, the little prayer groups that we're setting up. If you want to know more about it, you can ask Sam and he'll tell you all about that. Um, but we need to be a praying community. And I want to think particularly of the, the missions that we're doing this year. Pray for the work of Passion for Life as a whole thing up and down the country. It's really exciting to hear what's going to be going on. Pray for our studies in the midweeks as we do a Passion to Witness. Pray for your non-Christian friends who don't know Jesus. Um, and if you don't know any non-Christian people and you don't have any non-Christian friends, I would really urge you to get out more and meet real, normal, ordinary people and become their friends and enjoy their company, and uh, share something of Jesus with them as you do it.
Worship Jesus for what he's done and who he is. Worship him for what he's doing here um, and worship Jesus for the gospel and worship Jesus for his mission in this world. I want to encourage you to get on board with Jesus' mission, get involved in living it out in our lives together, our mission with Jesus in his world. That's probably enough for now. If you're not a Christian, meet Jesus. If you are, get more involved in Jesus' family and his mission for this world. So let's pray and then we'll sing. Father, we thank you for your word. Father, we thank you that we can be part of Jesus' family. Father, I thank you that we're brought into it by the good news of the gospel of Jesus. Father, we thank you that it is his death um, and not ours. Father, we thank you that he, he rises from the dead, taking away all sin, pain, suffering and death. And you're satisfied with what he's done. Father, I thank you that he ascends into heaven and he gives us his spirit so that we can be united to him and brought into that amazing community. Father, I pray that you would help us to be people on mission together, people who want to be devoted to the, the teaching of Jesus, want to be devoted to prayer, devoted to sharing communion together, devoted to worshipping and fellowshipping and sharing the gospel with other people. Father, I thank you for your word and I pray that you would help it to uh, take root in our lives and help it to make a difference to how we live and how other people see and understand Jesus. And Father, I pray that you would um, add to our number people who are being saved. And Father, if it's daily, we'll uh, see how that